The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. And we are back for another episode of Data Gurus, and today our guest is Tia Maurer. She is a group scientist at Procter & Gamble. Welcome, Tia. Time to welcome this week's data guru. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. I know that you have been doing a lot of interesting work at Procter & Gamble, and I'd love to have you just share a little bit about your background and what you focus on at P&G. Sure. I've actually been with the company almost 21 years. All of that has been in our products research function. It's a consumer-centric research and product development. I work in the beauty care products researchers um, group, providing leadership and expert research design advice to project teams as they go about executing and analyzing consumer research for project initiatives. In my spare time, I ballroom dance with my husband, Jason, and I serve as a volunteer teacher for students who are seeking their GED. That sounds like a handful of stuff. I have always wanted to do ballroom dancing. It's still on my list. So it's nice to know that you're, you're doing that with your husband. How long have you been doing ballroom dancing? 15 years. It's kind of our time together to do something together every week. We look forward to it. Fantastic. So I know a lot of, there's a lot of different titles and functions at large corporations. And can you just share a little bit in terms of how your role interacts with the consumer insights function, or is it one and the same? They're actually not. Procter & Gamble has two different groups. One is consumer market knowledge, which we affectionately call CMK. And then we have products research function. And so consumer market knowledge function works on kind of the go-to-market plan, consumer claims that we might put on our packaging, what, what is the messaging and the marketing message that we do with, with our consumers for our product goods. The products researchers are more partnered with being the consumer interface between our technologists who are formulating or designing our products and the consumer. So my background is in chemistry, so I understand chemical language. I actually am the technical translator of the consumer's layman's terms to my formulator to improve the product. And so we do the testing or the interface between the consumer and the formulator. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what are some of the issues that you deal with? I know you have a ton of data that you access for your role. Can you give us a flavor of the types of data that you use as it relates to your area of focus? So there's a lot of data. The two pieces that we primarily are using are either consumer testing data where we've actually gone out, given consumers a product to try or showed them an idea and then collected online survey data in terms of quantitative. We also do qualitative research as well, but the quantitative data that we would have data sets, we're actually going out, testing a product, testing an idea, testing a concept, collecting the feedback via a survey, usually online, via mobile or online platforms. And then also, we also have 
data in social media, right? So we're always looking at, you know, what are people posting on Amazon? What are people posting on social media feeds? What are key opinion leaders saying about our products? And, you know, people who are buying our products. And then we also have data that comes into our consumer comment lines where people will call maybe make a complaint or they will make a testimonial. So we're looking at that as well. So when you think about one product that you take to market, how much research is involved in that whole launch plan? Just to give a flavor of how much work goes into the function and getting a product to launch. Yeah, it depends on the product and what you're doing. So is it a product that we're actually starting from scratch, like a Swiffer or a Febreze or a Cascade Action Pack? I worked on Cascade Action Packs a number of years ago, and it took us over five years to take that from idea to market. So a lot of times, if it's something very new to the world, it could take years for it to come. And we have what is called front-end innovation. We affectionately, of course, term it with the acronym FEI. Our FEI teams are always working on things that could be anywhere from five to 15 years from from the marketplace. But if we're doing a commercial innovation where we're just changing maybe the artwork or the concept or the claim or something like that. That's definitely sheds really interesting perspective. Anywhere from five years is pretty amazing. And when you think about the data that you collect, how do you ensure it's good quality? Like what are some of the things that you consider and focus on? Nowadays, reliable data is really critical to us in our product development. You know, everybody is inundated with surveys and different pieces of information that they're asked to provide feedback for. So it's really imperative to confirm the accuracy of our data file before we're really commencing analysis. I always think that, you know, your analysis and insights are really only as good as the quality of your data and rarely is your data file 100% error free. I know that if you look out on the internet, there's a lot of people advertising that can make big bucks and stay at home taking surveys. And so that actually encourages some fraudulent behaviors. Sometimes people will sign up trying to make a quick buck and then whiz through your survey and they're really not giving you thoughtful responses or even accurate responses. They're just straight lining or, you know, answering will, you know, willy-nilly. And so it's really important that we spend time checking data file for accuracy. So for every 100 or so records, we might spend two hours going through and looking at it with a critical eye. You know, do all the questions answer the all the answer options present in the question if you've had full service versus doing it yourself? You know, is the correct population recruited? Is it who we really wanted to target? Is the panel balanced properly if you have more than one test leg in the study? Or even balanced to census if you're looking for specific demographics to match census? You know, is there a logical relationship among variables? And, and for example, you know, does the data contain pregnant males? I mean, that, that would right. be a problem, right? We're looking to make sure there's no vis, you know, missing values in the mandatory fields. You know, does the data just make sense? Use critical thinking skills. And, you know, were the panelists engaged? Do they, they put really good thoughtful responses in any open-ended questions? Were they straight lining? You know, we're looking for those number of things to clean up the data. And I think on the back end, of our surveys, we probably removed somewhere between, depending on the study, 10 and 20% of the data before we even start analysis. And you guys do that all in-house or your team goes through every single record to kind of do that critical eye in terms of the data cleaning? I would say that's not the case. A lot of times, you know, you have data processors that do that if you hire full service. But if mm -hmm. we're doing, if we're doing DIY, we're always trying to look at that sort of thing and, and make sure that we're pulling out people that don't look like they're giving us thoughtful, engaged, attentive responses. And I do know that even from some of the full service suppliers, I have people who are nitpicky like me that like to dig through their data before they start analysis and really making sure. And I've drafted a document that I've shared internally with people 
telling them not to jump into their data and here are 10 different things that you need to check for before you commence analysis. That's quite thorough. I'm curious, do you ever get pressure of timing as it relates to that trade-off? Because I would imagine it takes additional time to do that data checking. Sounds like your audience or your internal customers are patient to ensure that that validation takes place. Well, we're, we're sneaky and I would hate that if all of our managers listen to this podcast, <laughs> found out that a lot of times the products researchers will say the data is not due back until next Friday and it might come in this Friday. That way they have time to properly go through and dig through it before they actually show any pop lines. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense though, because the foundation of the research is not sound and, and you guys are making these important decisions from it. It could be a major error. Yep. And when do you guys decide between doing something in-house DIY versus when you actually hire a full service agency? I know many of us in this industry know that there's a trend for more and more DIY to be happening at the end clients or brands such as yourself. How do you guys actually go through the process of thinking through that decision? So DIY or full service, I think there's been a really big um, move towards uh, DIY from full service lately. They've created all of these easy to use platforms with the guided user interfaces and it doesn't take the programmer anymore who's a genius programmer or programming degree to be able to you know, kind of create your own surveys and everything's drag and drop just like it is in you know, Microsoft Office. And so people are more comfortable doing that. But I think lean innovation, which has really been a buzzword lately where everybody's doing things with faster turnaround that they're calling these, you know, research sprints, doing it with fewer dollars. You know, if you don't have the money, you really can't always afford to do full service. But I think it also depends on whether the team, not only do they have the money and the time, but also do they have the resources in terms of bodies to do the work. And so sometimes when you don't have the body, you're willing to put in the money because the work needs to still be done to meet a deadline. And in those cases, we might hire a full service. But I also find, I think too, for a lot of big product studies where we're releasing several test legs at a time to 300 people on each test leg, then you know you, you kind of want a full service supplier to make sure that everything goes well on those. It's a couple things, if I'm hearing you correctly. Number one, the tools are there to enable the DIY solution internally. And two, it's sometimes it's just a function of cost and agility to be able to move quickly. Absolutely. So how do you know when you actually have a good, when you have an idea or a product or service that's superior, that's different from all others? Yeah, and that is, I think that's a challenge with all businesses, right? Our, our challenge is to really delight consumers with high value product experiences and services. And they're really expecting, you know, superior performing products, especially if we're saying that they are, right? And we do find that people will pay a fair premium for those experiences or those products, but we really have to make sure that their expectations are met, right? And we want to provide them with high quality products at a reasonable price. But when we develop products that are meaningfully superior, they have to be meaningfully superior to consumers, you know, and it's the term meaningfully superior that we often are hard pressed to define. So I often find that researchers, and, and this is very true in quant research, they want to come in and, and beat our competition, you know, whoever that might, might be our, our greatest threat or whatever, or the person who owns the most market share without really thinking about the margin of benefit that's required to deliver a meaningful difference to consumer. So their objective is to show statistically significant difference, the magical S. <laughs> but that's really insufficient because one can virtually always show a difference between two products if the sample size is large enough, variability is appropriately controlled. 
So folks like to press a button in SPSS or Jump or R or whatever analytical platform that you're using and they rely on that magical S, but they're really shooting at an ill-defined target. Mm -hmm. You know, as a result, a small marginal step change in a product might be detected with that S due to variability, but is really not meaningful to the consumer. And so we really have to focus on the minimum meaningful difference defined as a small difference between two products that is really still relevant to the consumer. And so if instead we really aimed and defined differences that exceeded that minimal meaningful difference, the consumer would experience the meaningful difference and really think that the product, you know, was superior. So we have to figure out what that target is. That's kind of the first definition. And then once we figure out that target and, and be that if we're on a hundred point rating scale, it's 10 points that it's going to require that we need to see a 10 point difference regardless of base size to deliver a superior experience. What are your thoughts about behavioral data, behavioral research versus attitudinal research? Yeah, th this has been a hot one, I, I guess, for the past few years, and we've been doing a lot of work in this area. I think there has been a shift more behavioral research, especially here, you know, at P&G. And the reason's really simple, you know, we're learning that what people say and what they do don't always match. If I think about an example of this, let's say that I'm on a diet and I want to lose weight. So my intentions are I'm going to eat really healthy and I'm going to work out and blah, blah, blah. But today I had a lot of meetings, which I like to call a no pee, no eat day. <laughs> and I had a lot of meetings and I didn't get lunch. And so on my way home, I knew that my refrigerator was bare and I needed to stop by the grocery store. And so I go into the grocery store and I end up buying a box of Oreos and eating them on the way home. Now my intentions and what I would have predicted that I would have done at the early stage of the day would be that I was gonna eat healthy and work out. Actually happened, my behavior didn't match what I said I was going to do. And I think that's why we're looking at behavioral research because our traditional research relies on the myth of consumer self-understanding. Mm -hmm. So they can, you know, consumers can tell us what they like, what they don't like, their preferences, what their intentions are. They can predict what they're going to do in surveys, interviews, and focus groups. But they really sometimes even have difficulty articulating why they like or don't like a product or brand-related experience or service. They really don't know how they feel and they're not able to express those feelings because they don't have conscious access to the information to give an accurate answer. And so I think watching people and seeing how they interact with things, just observing, or even using some sort of implicit testing with them is probably a better way to get at some of those unconscious motivations and those behavioral things that lead to choice. If our product is or service is superior, she's going to choose that and choice is a behavior not just saying, I will pick that and predict it. She's actually picking it. And what about when you talk about past behavior? Do you think that you would have gotten somebody to say, I did pick up a bag of Oreos and I ate them on the car? I think some people will share that they do things if they can remember. And so recall is another reason why behavioral research is sometimes a little bit better or more reliable than asking people because traditional re research will rely on recall. And there's so many things that we're bombarded with every day that people don't always recall when they last used a product and what their experience was. We have so many habits in our day. If I asked you what your last shampoo experience was like, I don't know if you could tell me unless it was a really awful 
fabulous experience. Could you tell me how your shampoo lathered this morning when you washed your hair, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and do you think this is a function of our society, our culture today, that we're just all, we're busier than we were 20 years ago or 10 years ago? And hence, there's a question of whether people really can recall experiences or behavior? Yeah, I do think that we're a lot busier nowadays. And I do think it's part of it. I mean, some of the little things you don't really notice unless an experience is particularly bad or particularly excellent, you don't really notice. You just go about your habits. I mean, if you think about habit, you drive to work every day, and if you take the same trip in your car, sometimes you're thinking about things and you arrive at work and you can't even remember, you can't remember the drive getting there. And so I think a lot of the in the moment things that we're able to do as a result of the internet, it's really changed how we do research and recruit faster. We can collect data faster than we ever could before. But I think we also have the opportunity because people practically sleep with their mobile phone in their hand to actually reach them at any moment. And I can reach them in the moment they're using the product. And that helps with recall as well. So when you talk about the behavioral data or research, ethnography, is it passive metering? Is it mobile? What are the methodologies that you've had proven success with? There's some suppliers who've done things in this space. We've tried out some of them. I don't disparage or promote suppliers supposed to do that, but I know that there's some EEG things out there. There's some eye tracking. There's implicit cognition that folks are doing different ways on mobile that they have actually automated. Some of those things we've tried out and they actually prove out to correlate to market response in terms of sales data, which is nice. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. I know that there's always a online kind of surveys, recall is being challenged based on some of the things that we've just talked about, but ultimately you still can't figure out what a person's thinking. And so there is a role for surveys, for quantitative online data collection or mobile data collection to really kind of understand the psychology of a person and how they think. What's your perspective on that need? No, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we wouldn't have the access to the data that we have if we didn't leverage those tools, but there are also behavioral measures that are mobile capable now that, or online capable that we can actually do. And some are actually DIY. But no, we, we do need to know what they rationally are thinking, but we right. also need to know what their, their emotions are doing. And I would also argue that metaphor elicitation is probably a good way to get to that as well. So I know, and we've had lots of debates in our industry about you know treating respondents or consumers as customers and really thinking about the survey design and the survey engagement as a, an extension of you know either the panel company or the research company or even the, the brand, an extension of their brand and that experience. I'm wondering when you do the DIY research or when you work with other full service research research companies, how much does that factor in to the study design? The survey? Yeah, the survey, the length of the survey. Is it mobile friendly, optimized? How central is that of how you design the research? I help co-design research all the time. And I know that folks are resistant and it's very hard. And it's, it's a soapbox that I get on like, hey, you know what? 50% of people are accessing our surveys from their mobile phone. And we need to get on this bandwagon and we need to make these things device agnostic, short, easy mm -hmm. to follow, less scrolling is better, smaller images, that sort of thing, gamify it, anything mm -hmm. that we can do to help with the attentiveness of the respondent and make them want to come back again to do our, our surveys again. And you really are challenged because you have teams to 
only have a certain amount of research budget and they think if I'm only going to run one study, then I'm going to ask everything plus the kitchen sink. It is a battle to say, hey, you know what, after, you know, and it used to be after 15 minutes, you have drastic drop-off rates and the amount of time someone is spending per question significantly drops the more questions that you add. Not only abandonment, but the, the people that you keep aren't as engaged in giving you as thoughtful answers as the, the length of the survey continues. And so ideally, we would love to have those less than 10 minutes length. And of course, that's my utopia. It's not always reality, unfortunately, but I think it's going to come a day, and I've been saying this forever, where we are going to get to a point where everybody is on mobile and it's the only way they're answering, and we're going to lose our audience and we're not going to be able to collect data if we don't get on it. And I don't want us to get to the day where that happens and we haven't converted yet. We're in progress, but we're not there. Well, it's great to hear your perspective because obviously when you think about the value chain, working with companies like P&G are really thought leaders and, and kind of forging the way in, in many ways. And as, as a full service research company or a panel company, you kind of scratch your head and say, don't they get it? Don't they understand that we're burning respondents if we do these long surveys repeatedly? And it's nice to know that you, know, you get it and you're, you're championing that cause internally because as an industry it's really important we got to make sure these people come back and, and share their perspectives with us you know we argue that data is our the world's most valuable asset but for all of its value data alone is really powerless you know we're living in the age of abundant data so we can get data on almost anything anywhere right first party data which is what we collect directly from consumers we have second party data where it's someone else's first party data like shopper card data that we can get our hands on or a third party data that's aggregated from various sources and we actually acquire it by paying for it. Sometimes the cheapest data may not be the best choice of data to use to answer our business questions. And we really have to think about the source of data. We need to make sure that we're treating people right or our data streams will actually start dropping off. And we also don't wanna to rely too heavily on our quantitative data without understanding kind of the why behind the data as well. We need to think about the insights and the whys. That makes sense. I'd actually, one of my latest things is I think time is probably our most valuable asset, right? Because you can never get it back. And so every minute counts. And when we think about engaging with respondents, you know, we're essentially using a valuable asset for them to engage with us. Absolutely. And we need to make it, we need to make it fun for them. It needs to be like a video game because why would I spend my time ticking boxes? It's not, yeah, it's yeah. not a good use of time. Well, Tia, I really appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. I'd love to have you back in the future. I feel like we could talk for hours about this topic and other things as well, but I value your time as well. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.